0: Zach said it a couple times already, I'll just add to it. Good morning. Uh, thanks for being here. I say it uh, most of the weeks when we, uh, when we get up here, but uh, we need one another, and I say that to remind myself, but hopefully to encourage you. Thank you for taking time to be together with God's people. My guess is, is that we don't have a very good vision of just how much we need in one another. God saw fit uh, from the beginning of all things to set in place a plan, not just to rule the earth or to have subjects, but to have a family to have people. He's made us one in a way that is going to extend and deepen all the way through eternity, and so whatever way we can experience that here today, I'm grateful for, and I know that you being here is a part of that, so thank you so much for coming. I hope that we can be encouragement to you. If we haven't got a chance to meet, my name is Lance, and I serve as one of the pastors here. In a moment, I'm going to look at the Bible with you. If we haven't got a chance to meet, it might be because we've been in and out, and summer is, uh, is one of those times when people are around, I'm grateful the last couple of weeks, Brent and, and Brian taught from Scripture for us and held down the, the fort along with Zach and a number of the elders. Uh, our family got to get away and, and visit my immediate family. My immediate family all escaped from North Dakota. They live in Phoenix now, which could rightfully be called an overreaction, I think, if you, if you wanted to say that. Uh, but one of the things that happens when you have to visit family, because we don't live by either set, is that we often tack on a little bit of a family adventure. Uh, in addition to sort of make a vacation out of it, and so we had a really wonderful time enjoying creation. I don't know if you know this, but God is amazing, and he made an amazing place. Uh, There's certain points everywhere is beautiful. We're supposed to say that, right? Even even the, the flatlands of the Midwest are beautiful, but if we're honest, there are some other places that are more like God was showing off, and so we saw Bryce Canyon National Park, which was amazing, we saw Zion National Park, which is unbelievable, and hiked through the Narrows, if you know what the Slot Canyon is, which is really an experience that I would recommend to anybody. We saw the Grand Canyon, um, which our kids discovered through some learning there. It used to be called the, the Big Canyon, I think. Is that what it's called? The Big Canyon. So they've improved the name, at least. And if you, uh, if you wanted to go again, it's an amazing place. So I was grateful for time away, also very grateful to be back in worship. One of the things that we're going to do, if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 11, we're going to continue marching on, discovering, thinking about the story of the people of God. It's the people of God that we're focusing on this summer. Let me give you some context for why. As we study the book of Romans, we've gloried in Jesus. We've gloried in the righteousness that he gave to us. And more than that, as Paul is writing in Romans, he is amazed at the fact that God's plan seems to be coming into view of him, including the Gentiles, all nations being gathered together in Jesus. And the whole time, at least as he finishes chapter eight and goes into chapter nine, he begins to lament. He's saddened by this fact that ethnic Israel, those who had been given Father Abraham and all that it meant for him to be called and blessed and encouraged and said that he'd have a great name and be a great nation that ethnic Israel had rejected the Messiah. Ethnic Israel that had the great leader Moses been pulled from slavery. Ethnic Israel who had been given the law and the prophets. Ethnic Israel who had King David, a man after God's own heart. And ethnic Israel who had all of these blessings had for some reason rejected the Messiah and were hardened of heart. So the question that we came to in Romans near the end that's overhanging everything is what's going to take place with Israel? Israel. And in a few short weeks, in August, we're going to go back to Romans 11 and we're going to see that Paul has some very clarifying and I think encouraging things to say about Israel and its future. And that question still remains. It's one of the more debated topics amongst Christians down through the ages. What exactly is going on with this nation? We're going to take some time in September and gather with. The Congregation of Four Oaks East and Four Oaks Killarn and Paul and Josh and I are going to spend an evening talking through all the different options or things that people think concerning Israel. So you could, you could look forward to that if that's the kind of thing you look forward to. But that question, what is happening with Israel, is what we are trying to figure out, what we're trying to remember and look at. And rather than skating through the history and saying, well, we know their story, we wanted to take some time and pause and remember it. So we have gone through this summer more or less a greatest hits album of the First Testament, of the, old, of the Foundational Testament, the Old Testament. We've seen Abraham and Moses. We've considered the way that the law came. We saw that God legitimately flattened cities under the leadership of Joshua so that they could enter into the Promised Land. We saw a kingdom and a king being established. First in Saul, who was installed as king. Uh, this for other reasons, but more or less because he was the tallest guy which shows that we've had an unreasonable commitment to height for a long, long time. That was, his first, uh, that was the first king. And then finally, King David, who was a man after God's own heart. And where we've ended up now in the story is that Israel is starting to come into its own. It's starting to feel like it has an identity in a place that maybe all of the wandering, maybe all of the years of slavery, all the promises given to Abraham are starting to come into motion, and you might think as you've been reading through the story, as you get up into First and Second Samuel, that everything is just going to be peachy keen. It's going to be nothing but ice cream and sunset rides from here on out. But we discover that is not the way the story goes. And so what I'm going to look at is I'm going to start at the end of, of the story essentially of King Solomon. King Saul rules 40 years. King David rules 40 years. King Solomon after him rules 40 years. And that is the last time that we see a united, unified Israel. So what's going to happen is we're on a precipice here. As I dive into 1 Kings chapter 11, we're on a precipice here of a transition and a change in the fortunes of ethnic Israel, the people of God. What takes place as we're reading through this book is a turning of King Solomon from God and all that transpires because of it. So I want to do something. I want to begin at the end. I'm going to come into a story in motion, starting in chapter 11. We're going to go back to the first parts of 1 Kings because they're some of the best parts. So don't be nervous. We say, well, why did we skip over the wisdom and all that stuff? We're going to go back, but I want to start at the end. And the reason that I want to start at the end is because I want you to imagine those who would have been reading this account for the first time it is believed that first and second kings specifically were written down as a record for those who were faithful but remained in exile so a couple of hundreds of years down in the future if you were a member of the people of god you were likely without power without resources without influence and perhaps tempted to be without hope because you were in exile living in babylon under the constant pressure to worship and bow down to foreign gods. And you may have been asking yourself this question, how did we get here? What in the world took place? Where did things go wrong? It's a question that's much like that notable and wonderful piece of art, Ratatouille. The story opens with a rat saying, this is me. It's gonna be a story of chaos, and you may be asking questions, but it starts out by him saying, This is me. And it's probably clear to you by this point that I need to start doing things differently in my life. That's how he starts the movie. And so, in many ways, it's a it's a story, it's a tale of how did he get here? How did I end up in this spot? And first and second Kings would have been written and recorded and then read by an audience who would have been asking that question how do we end up here? Which is why I believe that it's fitting as we turn to Solomon to read chapter 11 first because this becomes the hinge point. God moves in anger because of something that takes place. So we're going to start here at the end and then back up. We're going to give Solomon the Ratatouille treatment. We're going to go back and say, maybe you should have been living your life a little differently. What happened? So we'll go back. But let's start now by looking at 1 Kings chapter 11. I'm actually going to start in the first verse, and read down through verse 13, and then we're going to pause and we're going to pray together. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. There's some, uh, some names in here, some things from Old Testament world that I'm going to try to get through without being tongue tied, but forgive me ahead of time if it happens. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. I'm going to pause there just so you get the picture. We're going to go back and consider him building the temple and look at the places of worship previous. But what's taking place here is right around the temple in the city of God, Solomon is beginning to set up places of worship to idols. And so, verse 9 comes. Verse 9 of 1 Kings 11 says this And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son. For the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, that I have chosen. We have here in the beginning of 1 Kings 11, a picture of a king who in his old age has, by a series not of massive catastrophic failures, but a series of small compromises, moved his heart from the Lord, and in response, a promise a promise that will be the tension of the rest of the history of Israel, that is, is that God will be faithful, but there will be punishment. They will experience suffering and loss, but not all will be lost. And as we consider that, let's take a moment and we'll pray together before we consider Solomon's life. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. You've made it and set it in motion and we don't want to waste it. You know that our tendency or our temptation would be to seek self or only comfort. Today, we confess as well that we have come with sin. As we confessed earlier, we have failed you in the things that we've done and in what we've left undone. I pray that you'd encourage us to be open in confession, confident in praise, boldly coming to your throne today. Help us in these things because the reality is is that we would tremble to be fully known. In so many ways, we've loved darkness rather than light. So God, help us to walk, to walk in light. We thank you for forgiveness, for your love, for your affection. Thank you for making us part of your family. We Thank you that in many ways, because we've been grafted in, this is our story. And I ask God, now that you would do a miraculous thing, that you would take these histories, specifically Solomon's history, and you would teach us. Help us to not be obtuse or simply see this as an academic exercise. We'd like to be transformed to love you more deeply. God, your, your word is living and it's active. It's sharp. It can separate And I pray that that would be its ministry here this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. If I had to put a title over what I'm considering here in 1 Kings, I would call it Kings of Heart. And, of course, this is a a small little play on words, because normally, of course, you would say that it is King of Hearts. But we're going to change around the S, because after all, what we're going to learn, I believe, with these kings is that God cares about something more than all else. And what he says in verse 9 of 1 Kings 11 should be instructive to us that what he looks for in a king, what he looks for represented by his king, but through all of his people, is not the success of their empire building. It is not the success of their riches, not the success relative to other nations, but the faithfulness and the steadfastness of their heart. And so if you think of 1 and 2 Samuel as more or less a story of of King David, as we shift to 1 Kings, it is a story of Solomon and all that is wrought in his wake. This is a story about kings and their hearts, mainly the fact that they have divided hearts, so they are much like us. So if this is the end, how did we end up like this? If that's what Israel's asking, and if now we're in chapter 11 and you're saying to yourself, well, how did we end up here with Solomon? Maybe the best thing to do is to back up, to rewind, and to tell a bit of the story. You see, things didn't end up like this, and that, or didn't begin like this. They ended up like this, but they didn't begin like this, and that's instructive. I'll start by reading in verse 3 of chapter 3. So we'll back all the way up to 1 Kings chapter 3, and we'll see that Solomon started out on a good trajectory. It was not inevitable that he would end up in a place where God's anger burned against him for a divided heart. It tells us in verse 3 of 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon loved the Lord. What a basic statement. But not to be overlooked, it's the most important thing concerning him. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, and only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. These high places were the place where Israel would go to give offering, to give sacrifice, and to worship the triune God. There was yet no temple. That's coming in a little bit. And so it tells us that Solomon loved the Lord, and he demonstrated this love by walking in the commandments of God and by worshiping in the right ways. So we go on to verse 4 of 1 Kings chapter 3. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was a great high place. And Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. And at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask, what I shall give you. Now, if that isn't just about the best middle school Bible Sunday school class fodder in the whole world, I don't know what it was. I can distinctly remember hearing about this story for the first time. And thinking through, wow, what would I ask for? And if I was honest in my heart of hearts, I wanted to be about six foot seven. I wanted to dunk on people endlessly to have an NBA career. And I would have been very tempted, if God can't imagine my dream, to say about my dribbling and about my height and about all those things. I remember thinking, what would I ask? And we, of course, hear from Solomon. What he's most famous for is this moment. And here's how he responds in verse 6 of 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and an uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people?" I just want to point out here that it's not, he never uses the word wisdom, but these are great definitions of wisdom. He asks for discernment and understanding mind to discern between good and evil. In all the circumstances of life, to be able to discern between good and evil is a pretty good working definition of wisdom. What does it mean for someone to be wise? Well, no matter what you throw at them, they seem to be able to parse through it and say, I think this is good. I think this should be avoided. And so in response to this request in verse 9, 1 Kings chapter 3 goes on, it says it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall rise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. It's an astounding account of the Lord appearing to Solomon and blessing him. And if you had paused the story right here, in fact, over the next seven or eight chapters, if you'd paused the story at any moment, you would have been tempted to believe Okay, it's finally over. All that God has promised is just going to continue to go and build. Everything is, as my grandma used to say, hunky-dory. I still don't know what that means. But you'd be tempted to say everything's hunky-dory. But we are going to find that in Solomon's life, despite his accumulation of riches and honor, despite his amazing execution of wisdom, people coming to him, that he will have an ongoing tension of a divided heart. And for those who would have been reading this account, they would have known this is coming. They would have had an experience already being in exile. And they would have been reading it saying like, oh no, what could have been? But I know where this is going. In fact, Dale Ralph Davis has a commentary called First Kings, The Wisdom and the Folly. He's very indebted to it. It's a wonderful book on this book, and he opens this account of Solomon and his path by describing a comic strip from Peanuts that he had read. And maybe I'll back up. There's many young people here. Peanuts was a comic strip. Or maybe I'll back up. A comic strip was a set, a little humorous, but telling things in a newspaper. Well, maybe I'll back up. A newspaper is a piece of paper that comes every day that tells you what's happening in the world. So are we on the same page now? So Dale Ralph Davis says that there is a comic that he read one time with Lucy and Linus. Lucy's sitting with Linus, and Lucy's about to read from a story, so she lifts up the book. It's a grand story, she says. And so the king was granted his wish. Everything he touched would turn to gold. Now the next day, and it's right then that the comic part stops, and Linus jumps to his feet, and he exclaims, very much exhausted or angered by this. He says, stop! You don't have to read any further. And as he walks away bemoaning, he says, you don't even have to read any further. I already know what's going to happen. He walks off and he says, these things always have a way of backfiring. These kind of things, these two good to be true moments... Now, I don't know specifically. Of course, there's stories of a Midas touch that turns things to gold, likely described here. But that thread is likely the experience that a reader of 1 Kings would have had. Imagine you're sitting in exile. You're in Babylon. You've got no kingdom. The temple's been torn down. You're wondering if you have any hope at all. You're reading it. You're getting through. You would be moved and say, wow, this is great. God comes to Solomon. He gets wisdom. I know part of the story. But part of you would be Linus. You might just say, "Stop. Stop. This is going to be too good to be true." These kind of things always have a way of backfiring. Because that was the experience, of course. And so one of the things that happens for us and maybe I'm just telling you for the first time, maybe you didn't know this, but Israel is eventually sacked. The promises of God and his punishment in first King's 11 come true, and the children of Solomon, none of them are able to rule effectively. Eventually, they end up in exile. And everything that he had built torn down. And many of them would have had the experience to say, what about us? What is the story? What is happening? And so we are putting the pieces together. This is in many ways an autopsy report. This is to describe how do we get from here. 1 Kings chapter 3 starts with, and Solomon loved the Lord. And he goes to worship. And God meets him and gives him wisdom. And he's going to grow in riches. How does it backfire? That's the question that's behind this whole account. So let's go on and see what happens with Solomon. won't take the time to read all of his exploits in detail, all the verses, but I'll describe many of them to you. Solomon begins to accumulate wealth at a pace that's never before been seen. His wisdom becomes renowned. There are many, many records where what it takes simply to feed the army and the house of Solomon is a nearly unthinkable, like the whole GDP of other nations around him, for a week's worth of resources for his house. It tells us that Solomon becomes one who speaks Proverbs, so he is a philosopher, a teacher, an instructor. More than that, he is a songwriter He is the best of many things. He's a a philosopher, so he's Plato. He's a songwriter. He's Elvis. He's—I know you're thinking—how do I go from Plato to Elvis? I'm just picking things. I don't know. He spoke of trees. He's a botanist. He would have fit in well in Tallahassee. Love us some trees, and so did Solomon. He spoke of beasts, birds, and reptiles and fish. He was a zoologist. You know, every little girl, maybe some boys too, but they want to grow up to be marine biologists. Solomon got to be a marine biologist, apparently. He knew of fish and reptiles. It says that all the people and all the nations of the earth came to hear his wisdom. Queens would come and give him tribute. One bit of speculation that I found extremely interesting from Gary Miller, who has a forthcoming commentary on these two books. He describes what he believes to be Solomon's collected works in Ecclesiastes, which I also believe is written by him or of him. One of my favorite books in all the Bible. And what Miller wonders is these times when people were begging for his wisdom and coming collectively to hear, how did Solomon handle collecting his wisdom and handing it out? Did he set conference dates? I had fun with this, but you guys know what South by Southwest is? You heard of this? It's like a technology conference for entrepreneurs and hip people, right? It's in Austin, Texas all the time. So did Solomon host like Near East by Near, <laughs> Near East? Isn't that a fun thought? I mean, He must have in some way organized it. You can't just come as a king. you got to announce your arrival. It would take a while to show up. And how would he collect his wisdom? And what would he do? And so Miller surmises that perhaps we get things like the book of Ecclesiastes as the overflow of a sort of wisdom conference that he would have had to, he would have had to put on and record his thoughts For people that would have come, Solomon expands militarily. He's Elvis and he's Plato and he's marine biology and he's a conference speaker. He's also a military genius. He's General Patton. He expands the territory outside of Jerusalem drastically. So, what Israel was as a small footprint begins to grow. And more than that, in the midst of all that Solomon is doing, he does the very thing that David longed to do, and that is to build a temple for the worship of the triune God. So we get a great account of all of the details put into this temple, this grand place where God would tabernacle amongst his people, and there finally in the midst of Jerusalem, the temple is built. Those who are paying close attention also realize there's some foreshadowing in the midst of this. Because upon the completion of the temple, which was a grand and wonderful place according to God's plan, Solomon quickly begins to build for himself a palace, which happens to dwarf the temple in grandeur and size, nearly twice as big. One of the reasons it had to be so grand and so big was to care for and house and resource his many foreign wives and families. So Solomon, despite the fact that he's growing in wisdom and accomplishing much for God, we see that there are these little side pictures of perhaps his struggle with a divided heart. Perhaps like most human beings, he wasn't able to perfectly handle wealth and honor and wisdom. And somewhere behind the scenes in all of these wonderful, glorious exploits, there is a man wrestling with his heart. There is a man trying to figure out what it looks like to be faithful and after God's heart like David his father, to be faithful to walk in the statutes of God. All of this taking place behind the scenes. You can see that Solomon now remembers these lessons and he knows them well because First Kings chapter 8 I'm just going to read one verse out of a, a wonderful prayer. It's a dedication of the temple. It should be a highlight in the history of Israel. Everything's going up, up, up. This is year 2000 tech bubble kind of moment. This is, what's the, what's the famous story of that? Like pets.com sells for $4 billion or some crazy thing. This is the pinnacle moment when things are just rising and everything's being dedicated. First Kings chapter eight, Solomon gives a prayer to the people and he, a prayer of benediction an encouragement to the people and a benediction. And this is how he summarizes the end of it, verse 61. I think it's instructive. He remembers what is most important. He says to the people, let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God. Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. Solomon knows that what is there before them needs to be guarded and protected and stewarded that simply because they dedicated the temple does not guarantee that they're going to have a faithful heart into the future. And this ends up showing up in Solomon's life. Perhaps it doesn't happen immediately, and perhaps the summary statement to describe what Solomon's rule was like is in 1 Kings chapter 10 starting in verse 23. It says, thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. So how, if Solomon was so wise, if he knew so much, If he was so powerful, if he accomplished so much, how do things go wrong? They go wrong because Solomon had neglected in the midst of all that he was accomplishing, he he had neglected the one thing he commanded the people to watch. He had neglected his own heart. He had, by small compromises over the course of time, allowed himself to veer from the commands of God, to entwine himself in the worship of other gods, and eventually to be a man who had a divided heart. He did not wholly turn away from God, but he was in just as dangerous a situation, and that is that he had not totally turned away from God. He had just enough faithfulness to God to not realize that he was in danger, and just enough compromise to have him teetering on the precipice. So this is a part of the story of people of the people of God. This is both the highlight and the beginning of the downfall. The rest of 1 Kings, much of 2 Kings as well, is this ongoing story of king after king, the children, the sons of Solomon, doing exactly what God had promised, and that is the kingdom being slowly ripped from them. There would never again be a united Israel. There would be a northern and a southern kingdom. They would begin to be harassed and eventually overtaken by bordering nations. Finally, after a series of kings that could be described essentially with this phrase, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's amazing how the history of Israel is handled. There's some kings, it was like, yeah, he ruled, he did evil. Next. Yeah, he ruled, he did evil. Next. There's some shining lights. Josiah steps in. It's a shining moment, but this is a a snowball rolling downhill. Eventually, get to the point where having read the dedication of the temple in all of its glory in 1 Kings chapter 8, eventually that temple is torn down. It's completely and utterly destroyed. It's gold shipped off for the enrichment of foreign nations and worship of foreign gods. So this is a part of the story of the people of God. Because we've been grafted in, this is in many ways our story as well. The question becomes, what should we learn from this? And how do we avoid these temptations? What are the kinds of things that if you could go back, if you could just before you get to the 11th chapter, what would you say to Solomon? What are the things that he's neglected? Now this is a very broad brushstroke summary of 1 Kings, but I would say that 1 Kings cries out, Two things for us to, con- to learn and to remember concerning our story as the people of God. The first thing to keep in mind, what does First Kings scream? Well, it screams this lesson, keep your heart. Keep your heart. All that was happening politically, all that was happening militarily, all that was happening in the economy everything happening religiously even. It was possible that Solomon could be building a religious empire, and from the outside, everything appearing well, but there being a slow leak, a decay in his heart. And I don't know what else could be said except to say that this is one of the maladies of living in a fallen world. That all of us are often much better at building a facade and doing exploits for God, many times in a religious way, while at the whole time neglecting our hearts. So, the question for Solomon perhaps could have been Do you have a good diagnostic? Are you able, in all of your wisdom, to understand where it is that you are being compromised at the depth of your being? In Scripture, the idea of a heart is the center of your will, the center of your desire, the center of your affections. It's not all affections, but it's certainly not none. The question would have been, Solomon, wouldn't it be wise to have a good diagnostic of your heart? I had to have a major surgery at one point, and prior to and after, the doctors were concerned, and they said, well, we want to check your heart to make sure everything's okay. So they sent me off to go get a blood pressure machine. I remember feeling very weak and very old all at the same time. I'm coming home and I'm thinking, I guess I got, this was something that always happened when I went to the doctor and I always felt very strong with, right? Because usually I had great blood pressure and the doctor would always say things like, oh, wow, I never knew what the numbers meant. I just thought they responded well. Like, oh, huh. yeah, yeah. And that, now I'm in a place where I'm having to get my own blood pressure machine and I'm watching with concern and I'm putting it on there and I'm pressing the button and every once in a while I'm taking a diagnostic. I'm keeping my heart and I write down a little snapshot. The question for Solomon, and perhaps the question for us, maybe you've come here this morning, and you haven't gone to CVS and bought the blood pressure machine. The question is, how would you know? How do you know the condition of your heart? Are there little snapshots? What gets the best of your time? What gets the best of your affections? What animates you? You know, the thing that even in the malaise of life, you're just walking through a fog, you're just doing the things like that, but somebody mentions this topic or presses this button and all of a sudden you come alive. The kind of thing whether anyone's listening or not, you give your own TED talk, you know that kind of thing? Like, well, actually, let me tell you why that episode of Star Wars, whatever, is terrible. These are keys to your heart. So if you took a snapshot, if I put the blood pressure machine on, what is it telling you about yourself Where does your money go? What are the few things that if you lost them, you'd just be desperately without hope? What do you wake up thinking about? What do you go to bed worried about? These are diagnostic questions of your heart. More than that, though, here's the interesting thing. You get the diagnostic thing and you put it on, and at one little time when I press the button and it squeezes your arm to death and it comes back off, that's a snapshot, right? It's a little Polaroid picture. It's like the old school when you had to take a picture and then you just got the one little standing thing. It's not a video. It's not about a pattern. So more than that, maybe a way to keep our heart is not only to look at snapshots, but another thing that the doctor might say, here's what I want you to do. Record your blood pressure. Well, why? Because I want to see what it does tomorrow. And I want to see what it does the next day. And I want to see what it does after that medication two hours from now. And then I want to make sure that three days from that. And so you might say to yourself one day, you put the blood pressure machine on, it comes out and you say, oh, I'm a little concerned about this. And your roommate comes over and says, what are you talking about? That's better blood pressure than me. Why are you concerned about this? Well, the concern comes from the trajectory. You might say, well, here's the deal. Look at the record of blood pressure. It's getting worse and worse and worse. I haven't even had a Big Mac, and it's just getting worse and worse and worse. Does anyone eat Big Macs anymore? I don't know. I don't think I've ever actually eaten a Big Mac. So, the trajectory of heart. Would you say to yourself, if you saw a trajectory, would you say to yourself, the Ratatouille comment, this is me. And by now, you may have figured out that I need to maybe live my life a little bit differently. So here's some good trajectory questions. What's growing in my affection? What am I becoming obsessed with that a year ago was not such a big deal? What am I more angry about today that never bothered me before? Maybe questions like this. What is it about my prayer life that is better now than it once was? And what about my prayer life is worse than it once was? What about my fears are more monstrous than they've ever been? Or what confidences have grown in me in the way that I approach God? You see, it's these imperceptible trajectory type drifts that lead people places. If you go back to 1 Kings chapter 3, and it starts out with this summary statement, Solomon loved the Lord. He goes up to worship. He offers a thousand sacrifices. God meets him. He wants wisdom to know how to discern good and evil. And you said, Solomon, what do you want your future to be? How many people do you think, or how many times do you think Solomon would answer, here's my hope. I'm hoping that slowly, very imperceptibly over the course of time, I make a series of compromises unbeknownst to me, so that eventually I become so dangerous in such a dangerous spot spiritually that I lose the favor of God. That's my goal. No one says that, right? Solomon would never say that. You know who else never says that? You and me. Never once in the history of someone rejecting the faith have they ever said, yeah, I remember, I confessed Jesus at the campfire But I distinctly remember thinking, I hope this slowly wanes in intensity and affection over time. I hope that I have an imperceptible drift in my heart in divided ways so that I don't even notice it, have just enough of God to be dangerously far from Him, and then eventually I'll fall. No one ever sets out on that path. So the question is this, why is it so prevalent? Why is this so tempting? Why could Solomon have everything going for him and yet have a divided heart. It's because he has not kept his heart with all diligence. He has forgotten. Perhaps he became a little too confident in his accomplishments. He did all the things that God said for him to do. He built the temple, after all. Isn't that enough? And God would say, no, you don't get it. The temple's great, but I'll tear this thing down. This is just a building. I want your heart. Proverbs 4, verse 23. Here's a good bit of wisdom for us. Speaking of wisdom, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. How many things in your life do you keep with all vigilance? Like when's the last time you did something and someone described it as, let me tell you about them with that vigilant. I played board games with my brother over the last little time in Phoenix, and lots of people like board games, and then there's my brother. When you get done with the board game, most people want help putting away the board game, not him. You know why? Because he keeps his board games with all vigilance. Every single card you play with has its own protective sleeve, like my Don Mattingly baseball card when I was a kid. He gets specialized from Etsy little pieces to make the game more exciting. When he gets done with that game, he says, he don't worry about it. I'm going to put it away. I love tinkering with it because he wants it done perfectly. If you describe how he deals with these things, wow, he keeps them with all vigilance. What is that thing for you? And does the heart show up on the list? Let me tell you about so-and-so. They're always just so careful to make sure that they're not letting bitterness and cynicism overtake. They're always so careful to go back and make sure that anger hasn't marked them. They're always so careful to make sure that they're committed in worship in a way that would be pleasing to God. They're always so joyful in the way that they approach learning and and scripture and community. They love other people so well. They're vigilant about these things, they don't let it slide like it's something small. And why should we do this? Well, we keep our heart with all vigilance because from it flow the springs of life. What Solomon had been doing unbeknownst to him, he's been cutting off his own source of life until finally God steps in with punishment and says, you've cut me off, therefore I will cut Israel off. Not totally. It's going to be a tension for the rest of the time. Not totally. We're going to see next week in 2 Kings that the prophets remain and Elijah has to be reminded there's a remnant But nonetheless, Solomon cut himself off from life, and so God said, he'll be cut off. Second lesson. I think that one makes sense. First lesson is keep your heart. Second lesson is essentially this. What do you do when you read through a story where Saul's not the right guy, and David has the right heart, but wow, he sins and he doesn't get to build the temple, and Solomon fails and he turns And then the punishment comes, and you just read page after page after page. Did evil in the sight of the Lord, evil in the sight of the Lord. It gets to the point where the law of God is is lost. They don't even know where it is. What do you say when you read through this, except for perhaps this lesson? We need a better king. We just need a better king. At a certain point, Israel, in all of its exile, they're living in Babylon and they're looking around, they're hearing the history, they're thinking, man, Solomon was everything. He did everything seemingly right and he still failed. What in the world are we going to do now? I don't know. What is that thing that you keep trying? It just never works. Something you say to yourself, okay, that's just it. We need a better something of this. You know what hates me? Printers. Printers hate me. And I hate printers. And nearly every time that the printer doesn't work for me, I just stare at it and I just think, what a disappointment you are. And why can't all the smart people of the world fix this? All the things that we can do and we can't fix this. And you see, I think that's what Israel would have thought. They're looking through the history of kings and this is coming out and they're in exile and they're reading it and they're remembering back to Solomon and saying, even he couldn't do this? We need a better king. We need a king who would have a completely undivided heart. We need a king who could not only build a temporary temple, but be a permanent temple. We need a king who would not have a promise of failure for future sons, but a kind of king who would welcome sons in to an ever-expanding kingdom. And so, the lesson that they should have understood, the people of God back then, is the same lesson that we should rejoice in now. We live in a a moment of honor. It's a privilege to live on the other side of these things. We don't have to pretend. We can read the story and say, I'm so grateful we found a better king. I'm so grateful that God, in his love and his affection, would send Jesus in the line of David to rule in perfect integrity, never compromising for a moment despite great cost to himself. Evidence that God still desired a people. Evidence that God would still tabernacle among us. Evidence that a temple could remain. We should learn from the story of the people of God that we need to keep our heart with all vigilance But even at that, what we ultimately need is a better king. I'm grateful for this testament for these reasons. I'm grateful for the Spirit of God that illuminates these things and helps us to think that that rule and reign from heaven is possible because Jesus has come. And I hope that as you read these things too, that it stirs you to say, I want to know more of this history so that I could be more grateful for the gospel. And that's the reason that we're studying these passages. So that when we're back in Romans, that they connect together in ways that create more praise. I want to pray for us. I want to pray for us that we're moved to be more diligent in our hearts, and secondly, that we're grateful for King Jesus' Let's pray.